Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Plain Talking UK podcast. It's episode 393. And in this week's show, a DC-3 is involved in a gear-up landing. Virgin Atlantic launches its first long-haul destination from Edinburgh. And in India, passengers have to push an aircraft down the runway after a tyre ruptures. In the military, listener Sturman sent in some questions about the situation in Ukraine, which Armando is going to address for us. And the French make some big sales deals with the Raphael. And we update the situation with the UK F-35 that crashed into the Mediterranean. Joining me this week are Matt Smith in the PTUK studio, for starters. Well, hello. hello. Sorry, I'll bring me a fader up. That'll work, won't it? <laughs> That'd be a helpful thing. How are we? How are we? All good? Yes, very nice. It's great to be back, actually. I've been away for so yeah. many weeks now. Uh, we haven't actually spoken for a, a long time, have we? I know. So, I know. I think it's like the longest like since you first joined. <laughs> I know. I know. But, uh, been a busy old time. Yeah. So how have you, how you been this week, Matt? You been yeah, busy yeah. No, busy, busy. Uh, work's been a bit crazy. It's uh, what we like to refer to as peak uh, at the company I work for, as you can imagine. So frantically yes. trying to get everybody's wine out to them in time for Christmas. And there have been some weather-related logistical challenges and a breakdown in a warehouse that has uh, uh, made that more challenging and difficult than it would ordinarily be. So um, to... Uh, Say that, uh, yeah, it's it's going to be a, it's going to be a fun couple of weeks, I think, and, and mm. not necessarily in a good way. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I've been away myself a little bit, um, Sweden for a week, uh, Brussels, Antwerp, all sorts of places. Uh, I've done a few videos on some of those as well, which Ooh. I'll be sharing at some point while I've got the editing machine going. <laughs> and uh, yes, it was it was quite a trip actually, but uh, no, great to be, be back home again. That's the main thing. I bet, so, I bet. Yeah, yeah. but uh, uh, also joining us from the other side of the pond with a slightly unusual voice this evening <laughs> is Armando. Hey guys, you're going to have to uh, excuse me here because. Uh, I'm just a little bit under the weather, so this is uh, Armando's best friend, uh, Barry Mondo. Uh, yeah, if I have to step out, it's probably because I'm having a coughing fit, so uh, be ready to uh, jump in and save my bacon. Step wow. in at any moment. Amazing. Was this anything to do with the APG 500th show, by any chance? Oh, highly likely. I think I uh, ended up hugging everybody and kissing uh. everybody. We all shared some wine and cheese at, at as you do at the APG 500th in that swanky hotel we were at. Yeah. So um, pretty sure everybody got sick out of there. It was just a big old uh, <laughs> you know, love fest. Yeah, yeah. P- Petri dish of uh, of all sorts of bits and pieces. No COVID, though, hopefully. I suppose that's P- the main thing. Petri dish of uh, aviation geekiness. <laughs> and we're all taking medicine for Absolutely right. Excellent. <laughs> what a win. <laughs> yes, of course, uh, last week was the APG 500th show, which went down very well, apparently. Mm. And uh, I was doing some of the technical business yes. down at Farnborough, uh, which had its challenges from time to time, that's for sure. But we got a very good turnout down there as well. I think about 35 people showed up, which oh, was wow. marvellous. Um, and then a few drinks afterwards uh, in the hotel. But uh, oh. that was really good. So, uh, yeah. Great, so, so a great was, time was happening. Was the hotel uh, nearby, or were you in the hotel? Or yes, it was the Aviator Hotel, just round the corner from the Fast Museum, which is where the um, the event happened. Uh, oh, nice! Really great aviation museum, actually. And if you haven't been there, mm. uh, see if you can get down there one of these weekends. It's it's a fascinating place, and also the volunteers 
that are down there. Uh, these gentlemen are so knowledgeable. Uh, it's absolutely marvellous. So it was oh, really brilliant. great to uh, to do all that. But uh, yes, we are now back to reality now, I'm afraid. So, um, <laughs> which I'm quite glad about. I'm glad I don't do one of those a week, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I can say it was your job at one point, Nev. I know, I know. I'm, I'm glad. I Can you imagine? Yeah. Yes. Oh dear. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, of course, we've got to thank everybody that's joined us in the chat room tonight. And just scrolling through, I can see Richard Adams, Lane Street, uh, GB's Model Zone, Mazuz Kareem, Airliners Live, Jacob Darlington Brown, uh, Dirk S, Plane Safety Podcast. You might have heard of him. Um, who else we've got Masha in there as well Jonathan Warner it's good to see Jonathan uh, last week great to see you sir um, and who else have we got there um, Tony S as well and Armando he's actually he's able to write but not, not able to speak <laughs> indeed I'm better at writing than speaking right yeah. and, and I must admit I, I, I'm, I'm rather loving uh, Dirk's comment there. he says Matt please buy a Barry normaliser for Armando he needs to keep that voice from now on for every show there you go <laughs> I was just I was just thinking actually Matt we've we've got to do an advert for somebody soon haven't we oh we um, have yes and we were, were thinking about who we should use for the voiceover mm. I think we've just found our uh, contestant I think we have that. yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> he seems less keen I don't know why uh, oh I know yeah. Exactly right. Oh, and Neil Lamorne is saying a brilliant museum and a great night. Shame I had to dash as I had an early start. Got a beer with my APG glass now. There we go. That's what we like to hear. Ah, good yeah. lad. Excellent. Indeed. Yeah, it's good to see you, Neil. Thanks for coming down. And uh, yeah, it was really, really good. And uh, it's a great museum, as I said. And good evening to Bob Cronman as well. Hi, Bob. Hope you are well. Looking forward to seeing you soon somewhere at an event i don't know absolutely what, where or what but i'm sure fingers we'll crossed get together <laughs> at some point so uh well as always we kick off with the commercial aviation news so if everybody's ready yeah let's go let's get it on <laughs> I think we need a song from Armando before we finish this evening. Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> yes, great idea. Well, this first story is uh, coming to us from a couple different sources, from avherald.com, adn.com. Um, you guys, please tell me that you saw this video. Um, initially, Matt's going to play it out here in a second, but yep. initially I, I actually thought it was not a real video. I thought it was a fake video. But, oh, wow, um, really? What happened? Yeah, what happened was uh, Trans Northern Aviation Douglas DC-3, which was actually an R4D Navy version registration, November 28 November, was performing a freight flight, uh, uh, Trans Northern 123 from Anchorage to Kodiak, Alaska, with two crew on board. Now it was on the initial climb out of Anchorage's uh, runway seven left when the, cl- the crew declared an emergency due to the failure of the right-hand engine. Um, now, they re- initially requested to come back to runway seven left, requesting left turns only into turning into the good engine was a, uh, kind of a standard for multi-engine practice. Um, but in the end, they decided to divert to Anchorage's uh, Merrill Field. That's uh, four miles to the northeast of Anchorage International Airport. So they reached a maximum altitude of about 900 feet. The aircraft ended up performing a gear up landing on Merrill's runway seven keeping that left wing up with the engine operating as long as possible. 
Now that crew was able to bring the aircraft to a stop on the runway, they landed perfectly centerlined. There were no injuries. Um, now the aircraft s- sustained substantial damage. That's according to uh, Av Herald. But to me, it actually looked like the aircraft was was pretty well intact. I, I can only imagine that it'll be back in the air um, within just a couple months. This wow. airplane was a, a later version. It was manufactured in 1952, according to the FAA's uh, aircraft registry. Now, Matt's uh, going to play out that video yep. if you have it. Yeah, okay, here we go. Uh, so I think we've got some audio on this as well, so let's have a listen. Transfer 123, Anchor Tower, 187, last line point. quite an amazing incident though isn't it and i mean again i'm sort of amazed uh the fact that there's been no injuries or anything like that with it. i mean that was a that was a almost like a textbook landing yeah now to be honest um I, this is i don't know how many podcast hosts can say this but i do have a typewriting in the dc3 um <laughs> it's um it's uh, surprisingly simple to fly on one engine um i think it was kind of designed that way you know they, you had 19 year olds and 20 year olds flying this thing in world war ii um and uh but the the decision making that these pilots um went through and instituted and implemented it was just truly amazing because they you know challenging situation it's a freighter they never fly freighters empty so i can almost guarantee they were at max weight um to be able to control the airplane make the decisions they did now, the reason that they landed gear up was to reduce the amount of drag on the airplane. So what apparently happened was the right engine failed. Normally, that engine, the propeller is supposed to feather. That is, it's supposed to turn and go into the wind. Um, think of it if you're sticking your hand out the window of your car while you're doing 60 miles per hour. It's the difference between putting your hand you know, straight out and the wind pushing it back or turning your hand like this into the wind and and having less resistance. That's what the propeller is supposed to do. It's supposed to turn into the wind. It did not do that, um, which reduces the, um, the controllable air, the minimum controllable airspeed of that airplane significantly. So they made the decision to keep the gear up in order to, to maintain more airspeed and more controllability and get it onto that runway. So, um, yeah, really, really well done. It's a, 
bit of a non-standard emergency. You know, I, I, I can't wait to see a little bit more and get a pilot interview, but mm. um, decisions like that are usually made by pilots with a little bit more uh, experience, experience, more flight time. Yeah. Because, you know, you have a, uh, you have a checklist and you have um, a single failure, but this was a, you know, kind of a compound failure. I was like, okay, well the prop didn't feather. I don't, I don't know that there is a checklist for a, a prop fail to feather on the DC three. I know there isn't in the Basler. So, um, yeah, well done to these pilots. And I can't wait, I can't I wait think, to hear from them firsthand. Yeah. I think the other thing to bear in mind, of course, is that they only reached an altitude of 900 feet. So there's, that's not a lot of, uh, wriggle room at all when you're in no. that situation. I, I would no, not at all. Indeed. That's Actually, uh, Jonathan Warner's got a question for you, Armando, as well. He's saying that apparently that's an unusual shaped tail for a DC three. Can you shed any light on that? I think the R4Ds, the Navy version, had a, a bit different tail. You, it's not the yeah. I noticed it too. It's a, it's almost like a square tailed Cessna 182, um, but I, I think it was just the uh, the Navy versions had that. Just a, a, a different tail, uh, and uh, just uh, one one uh, uh, thing I'd like to say. Obviously, uh, you may have noticed there was a little bit of strong language in that video. Apologies if anyone was offended by that. Oh, I didn't notice any. Yeah. Oh well. Done. Now that the, there's a couple uh, couple pilots that got super ex- excited at the. Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, and of course, what we again, I mean, you know, this is the reality of an incredible situation unfolding in front of them. So, you know, I mean, you know, this is that this is the thing, and it's, uh, you know, it sort of shows really that those reactions show to me like what an amazing achievement that was um, to just sort of, I mean, because you say because it sort of it sort of touched the round, and again, like Dirk is saying, it's as if they practiced it every single day you know it's that same thing isn't it uh sort of yeah. hit 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 the deck um like well it didn't hit the deck did it i mean it very smoothly sort of glided along the uh along along the situation i mean it's a, a incredible achievement by the pilots and you know go goes to show the importance of all that really intense training doesn't it yeah and experience absolutely um, experience further the r4d uh dash eight had that too okay it was a it was a super dc3 a c117 it's a little bit upgraded from uh, from the regular C forty seven. Nice, nice. Okay, shall uh, shall we uh, move so, on then? Yeah, next story is for you, Matt. Right. Yes. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So this is uh, on the AV Web. A couple of sources on this one: the AV Web dot com and flightglobal.com dot com. And the headline: S seven A three twenty Neo was only partially de-iced before in flight upset. So shortly after takeoff uh, from uh, Magadan Airport, just north of the Sea of Okhotsk in far eastern Russia, S7 Airlines Flight 5220 operated by an Airbus A321neo with 202 passengers and seven crew members on board uh, began having problems. The crew declared an emergency due to the airframe icing. According to a flight data recorder readout posted on social media, not yet to confirmed to be from Flight 5220, the aircraft, the Airbus crew disconnected the autopilot shortly after takeoff after a slight descent that began about five minutes after reaching an altitude of 8,784 feet. Uh, Does, the... Doesn't that just explain the Airbus right there? <laughs> the, the crew disconnected the autopilot shortly after takeoff <laughs> oh Indeed. so much material but so little time 
Absolutely. Anyway, the single Isle airliner spent the next seven minutes in chaos as multiple flight parameters showed rapid oscillations for about seven minutes, according to a narrative posted on Catherine's report. The pitch altitude oscillated with minus 23.9 degrees and plus 43.6 degrees being the uh, most extreme value, values reached. In that period, the aircraft rolled left and right, with extreme values being plus 49.8 degrees and minus 91.1 uh, degrees. The data published by Catherine's report showed the aircraft rapidly climbing from 4,699 feet to 14,351 feet, then quickly descending to 5,084 feet, from then on, altitude remained difficult to control. Uh, read, the na- read the narrative with the aircraft climbing back up to 13,748 feet and descending to 4,556 feet at an average rate of around 1,000 feet per minute. That seems like a lot. <laughs> the crew made two unsuccessful attempts to land back at Departure Airport, though it's unclear why the attempts were unsuccessful. Eventually, the crew were able to climb to and maintain a normal cruising altitude and continue westbound for a safe landing uh, at uh, at their destination airport five hours after takeoff. Uh, the original destination um, was considered... Oh, sorry. Landing at uh, Ikrusk uh, five hours after takeoff, the original destination Novobersk, uh, Novobersk. Sorry, I'm terrible with the Russian uh, the pronunciations. Was considered unreachable due to the extensive flight time at low altitude while attempting the emergency landing at uh, Mag- Magadan. Uh, Federal Airport uh, Federal Air Transport Regulator stated that the S7 Airlines aircraft was parked for two and a half hours in heavy snowfall, leading to a large amount of snow accumulating on the upper fuselage. After the windscreen heating was turned, uh, windshield heating was turned on. It says the snow melted, resulting in water runoff from the glass. This ran down to the forward fuselage and, during taxiing in freezing conditions, reformed as ice ridges in front of the pitot-static sensors. Um, Rose Rose Aviastia said the distortion of the smooth airflow into the sensors resulted in unreliable readings from three air data systems after the jet became airborne, causing uh, discrepancies in the airspeed information. The aircraft systems degraded, disengaging the autopilot and autothrust and presenting flight control problems for the crew. Uh, they said uh, the icing of the wing surface and the stabilizer carried out in two stages with type 1 and type 4 de-icing fluid was done in accordance with the decision of the aircraft crew during preparations for departure uh, on the 2nd of December. Takeoff with a thicker, thick layer of snow on the fuselage surfaces and the cowls of the engines in conditions of turbulent and icing resulted in a threat to fly uh, safely. Uh, it adds, uh, they also say that it has obtained enough preliminary information from air and ground recordings, uh, examination of the de-icing fluid and video surveillance at Magadan to begin uh, taking preventative measures. So, I mean, this is uh, one of those situations where I guess we're very lucky that uh, it wasn't more serious, um, although it must have been very scary at the time, of course, with it with it taking these very extreme 
um, alterations. I mean, is is this one of the problems about being so reliant on technology, if you like, uh, in terms of? Uh, I mean, if this aircraft was craft was being flown completely manually, would it, would you have had those extremes in altitude and things like that? This is not something I really understand, which is why I'm asking this sort of slightly odd question, really. I guess I've, I'm firing this one at Armando a bit. Um, yeah, no, they they probably uh, they did end up flying it manually. Yeah. Um, the the way this happened, so ice is very important. Um, it's a, it's very important to to remove any ice from the airplanes. Now, when I first read this, I was I was just wondering if if they had. Uh, completed the de-icing process uh, as required. There was a really famous crash in uh, Washington, D.C., Air Florida, uh, 737-200 that crashed into the Potomac River because they um, they executed the de-icing process too early. They didn't use the right, the right de-icing, and they continued to um, fly the airplane with icing on it um, and also never used full power. So there's uh, very rarely to use full power on these aircraft. Um, they they never pushed the throttles up and it ended up crashing into the river. So that was one of the situations that, that came to mind when I was first reading this. Now, as as the article continued on, they they figured out that what actually happened was that, that yeah, the, the ice from the windshield came down, melted, and then refroze right in front of the pitot tubes. That's pretty unique. Mm. That's uh, something that you wouldn't expect to happen. And, and me, I, I don't know that I would have thought of that as a cause, right? Especially since you know you did, you did the de-icing process, right? And they did type 1 and type 4 uh, de-icing fluids. They just have a little bit different viscosity. So type 1 being the, the thinnest de-icing fluid, type 4 being the thickest. Um, so ice will not um, accrete on, onto the, the surfaces. Um, so as a pilot, I would, they probably were a little bit thrown off knowing that they had de-iced everything uh, appropriately, um, I would have never expected the ice from the, from the windshield to, to melt. Any of those ridges, ridge lines that form um, in front of the surfaces, I mean, you could have ice-induced uh, roll upset from ice building in front of the, uh, the ailerons, right? So if you don't de-ice that correctly, it disrupts the airflow. If you, um, you could have a tailplane stall from ice uh, accretion in front of the tailplane, but ice in front of the pitot tubes because they're heated. You right. have the, the, the pitot tube heat on. Um, that's a pretty rare situation that I'm sure these guys were not expecting. So, so forgive my again. This is uh, sorry. This is this is the trouble when uh, the person sat in this chair literally knows nothing about aviation. Uh, what? Why the extremes in altitude? I mean, were there physical extremes in altitude, or was it merely incorrect readings? No, the the airplane probably tried to to, to rectify itself, right? Um, because there was wrong data. This is like Air France four forty. Okay. So they were they they were in that case their pitot tubes were completely frozen over, but uh, they the airplane is trying to right itself, and the crew is trying to figure out what's going on. Right. And it eventually goes. Uh, some some Airbus person uh, correct me, but I think it eventually goes into direct law once they kicked off the autopilot and it's reading um, uh, what do you call it uh, signals from the air data computers that are not matching up to each other. Then the aircraft just reverts back to hey I don't I don't know what I'm 
I don't know that the data coming into the computers is correct. So it reverts back to direct law, which is a manual control. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so uh, once they've taken manual control of, of the aircraft, then essentially uh, they're able to sort of get things to sort of fly in a, a fairly fairly level sort of... I, I, guess, I guess the the other risk is, I suppose, if the inf- instrumentation is playing up, they don't really know exactly how high or low they are other than, you know, sort of looking right? at the wind shadow. They don't know how get... fast they're going. No. Plus, this doesn't say if they're in IMC conditions. So yeah. that's another thing where they may not have had a horizon yes to look at to realize that they were in an uh and uh a, what do you call it an, an upset recovery situation yeah because they're getting all the wrong data that yes. they probably did everything that they knew how to do um and to richard richard adams in the in the chat room asked the heaters on all pedos failed at the same time they probably didn't but what was happening was the disturbed airflow going into the heated pedo tube was giving them wrong data right Gosh, I seem to remember as well. Um, you referred to the Air Air Florida Flight ninety, wasn't it, at the uh, Potomac? Um, subsequently to the um, NTSB investigation, on the inspectors. I mean, it's a slightly different set of circumstances, I think. But he did say, if you don't depart with a clean aircraft, you're probably going to die. And, right. Uh, I think that <laughs> it probably is the best summary out of all of it. Now, clearly in this case, there was some mitigating circumstances. Mm. And there, when it comes to de-icing any kind of aircraft, but especially commercial transport jet aircraft, there are very set procedures uh, in place about uh, how long the, the fluid is valid for and whether you have to go back and de-ice again with different types of fluid. There's a whole load of stuff to go through. Um, yeah, it's called the holdover time. Yeah. And uh, type four de-ice fluid, at least here in the U.S., I don't know about Russian, um, but it's anywhere between 35 minutes and uh, an hour and 15, depending on how heavy the snow is falling. Um, we only use type one de-ice fluid, which is essentially five minutes for a whole oh, gosh. time. Right. And, and again, forgive my naivety here. Is there a difference in the standards in terms of de-icing in different locations in the world, or is it just... Is it the same, you know, it's a sort of an agreed formula, if you like, and you've got the type one and the type four, depending on the conditions that are, you face? Yeah, I can only imagine that it's actually set by the manufacturer of the aircraft. So I'm sure right. Airbus is the one that sets because um, they've tested um, that aircraft and its uh, aerodynamics with ice. So it's probably if they have a, 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 a operating procedure, it's probably based on Airbus's um research and numbers wow okay thanks for that armando i appreciate it. as i say unfortunately lots of um sort of <laughs> questions from me for uh, it's a, i mean it, i'm pleased that nobody was hurt it's a fascinating um sort of story to follow really and i guess there'll be more coming out out of this in in, in the coming but, weeks matt you know there there are no bad questions and i gotta admit this is a great example if you are uh, as we enter the winter flying season mm. Um, there are many cases, not many, there have been a few cases where a passenger in the back looks out onto the wing and they see ice or snow. And sometimes all it takes is just a quick question of, Hey, is that normal? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even a passenger sitting in the back could potentially, um, you know, save a flight that could be yeah. a cover that's, that's loose. It could be an engine cover, uh, flight control that doesn't look quite right especially us av geeks, you know, yeah. everybody's sitting in the chat room and, and listening to this podcast. Um, you know, it, it, it does not 
hurt at all. If you don't, if you don't feel like everything is right, or you have a question on something, yeah. you may be the, the one person that notices something that the crew doesn't. That the crew hasn't. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Interestingly enough, uh, Pip's in the chat room. As, uh, e- evening, Pip. He's saying it's a skill that requires proper training. I've seen some woeful de-icing in my time. It's, uh, yeah, it, it is a proper skill, isn't it? There's, there's no two ways about yeah, absolutely. that. Absolutely. Anyway. But do you remember last year we were talking about there was a, a Ryanair plane in Italy and they were de-icing it with buckets? Like they, they had buckets of hot water and they were just throwing <laughs> it onto the wings. It's a terrible idea. It's just going to refreeze. But wow, do you, remember, okay. do you guys remember that story? We did that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't. I can't remember what I had for breakfast. So nothing personal on that one. But uh, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. All right, uh, fascinating. Let's uh, move on if we can, Nev. So yes, moving to warmer climbs. Oh, I'm good. I'm so um, I'm feeling positively chilly. I'll be honest. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, this is from uh, RootsOnline.com, and it says that a Virgin Atlantic Airbus A330 landed in Barbados on December the eighth, having departed from Edinburgh uh, earlier that day, making the first ever international flight operated by the carrier from the Scottish capital. Uh, the Edinburgh to uh, Barbados route, which will be operated twice weekly, becomes the only non-stop connection between Scotland and the Caribbean. Uh, Virgin Atlantic additionally plans to operate t- uh, twice weekly service between Edinburgh and Orlando, MCO, from March 2022. Uh, Virgin's trusted uh, Airbus A330-300 will serve both flights, and these uh, planes come equipped with 31 seats in upper class, 46 in premium economy and 185 seats in standard economy, uh, which is a total of 264 passengers. Uh, The new service to Barbados aims to capture the pent-up demand to visit and reconnect with family and loved ones, as well as sun seekers looking to explore the idyllic island with easy onward connections to the wider Caribbean, uh, Edinburgh Airport said in a statement. The service will also offer an efficient cargo service, presenting new opportunities for companies looking to export and import Scottish products between Scotland and the Caribbean. Virgin Atlantic noted that Scottish whisky with smoked salmon will be amongst the products it will transport to Barbados. Scotland's Transport Minister Graham Day said that the airline industry has been severely impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, adding it's very encouraging to see the shoots of recovery with this new service. So that's a nice temperature variation, isn't it? Um, cool, yeah. <laughs> Edinburgh to uh, Barbados and Orlando. <laughs> that's uh, that's my kind of trip. Although coming home is a bit depressing. I possibly. bet, yes. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's one of the things that, I mean, from, from the few sort of, I think I think Sharm el-Sheikh was where I went, uh, where it was most noticeable. Uh, and it was a, it, we were flying from Luton. It was a proper chilly, icy cold day that we were leaving Luton. I think it was a sort of like one of the coldest octobers in years or something silly mm. and uh, we'd flown out to um sharm al-sheikh and you, you, when they open that aircraft door that that heat wave is the one thing that was my like not i mean don't get me wrong we had a lovely holiday but my lasting memory of that was when they opened that door because it was like bright sunshine and all that and it was just like whoa <laughs> Yeah, it's just like opening the oven door and putting yeah. your face in it. And, and uh, I think, yeah, Dallas was the closest I got to that, I think, in really? 1994, I think it was. And, uh, yeah, the heat was just unbelievable. I can imagine. Um, but yeah, incredible. Indeed. Uh, so, Armando, if your uh, voice is up to it, you've got the next story. All right, this one also came to us from a couple different sources from vacationer.travel, 
from the points guy from united.com and a couple of united uh, posts on facebook um united's lgbt lgbtq plus business resource group uh, labeled equal staged united airlines inaugural pride flight uh, on saturday december 4th this fully staffed by lgbtq plus identifying employees from the pilots and gate agents to the ground operations crew the flight was organized to raise awareness and highlight the contributions of the LGBTQ plus community and to honor World AIDS Day by uh, those living by with AIDS and HIV among their employees and customers. Uh, to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the first ever recorded case of AIDS, Flight 1991 was selected as the nod to the year when the red ribbon was first used as a symbol of remembrance for those impacted and uh, lost to the AIDS crisis. But this commemorative flight took off from Newark's uh, Liberty International Airport to Chicago O'Hare with a little bit of fanfare. Prior to the flight, customers and employees were treated to brunch. Oh, how nice. Um, and a live performance by the Tony-nominated actress Jen Kalea uh, uh, from the Broadway show uh, Come From Away. That's the really good show about 9-11. Um, uh, uh, attendees also wore red ribbons and were encouraged to donate to LGBTQ plus causes via the Miles on a Mission uh, program. While boarding, customers received gift, gift bags with swag, a United Pride pin, a rainbow popcorn <laughs> made by the LGBTQ plus owned po Epic Popcorn as an extra snack. Uh, upon arrival at O'Hare, the, uh, the fire department there made, met the flight for a water cannon salute and it hit the light just right, just uh, perfectly to make a rainbow effect with the stream of the water showering the arriving aircraft. Now, after deplaning, the customers were met with clapping and cheering from employees. They also received uh, colorful lays to further celebrate their participation on this historic flight. Um, this uh, United Airlines Business Resort group, Resource Group, Equal, is an employee group to support lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and ally co-workers. This uh, group boasts more than a thousand members and employees from every labor group, division, and hub airport. Um, there you go. And Matt uh, put up some pictures. Looked like an all-around fun flight. Absolutely. Maybe United should make all their flights as much fun. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I certainly like the idea of brunch. That's that's, that's a lovely thing. <laughs> I think more people yeah, are excited so about that. Brunch and a performance yeah. at the gate. <laughs> Absolutely. What's not to like about that? Wow. Have you noticed, yeah. Matt, that um, the, the longest stories uh, in this week's episode are all being read by I think they are. Armando? <laughs> um, so Thank if you ever get to the point where you need to bail out yes absolutely uh, do it do holler we're we'll, primed and ready yes we'll come yeah. to your i think i think john owes me a beer for that yeah one. absolutely oh, or, or a nice hot tea with honey <laughs> absolutely yeah, yeah or, a hot, or a hot toddy i think that's probably what you need more than anything you know, else I, yeah. I don't know if she's listening or not but my lovely wife actually uh brought me a, a hot tea with honey oh, in, the, in the middle of that in my oh. in my ruth Bader ginsburg cup love it <laughs> I, I hear voice. Ah, oh, bless. 
Oh, geez, that was on camera. Yes, it was. Very good. Well done. (laughs) You've been caught out being nice to your wife. Outrageous. Uh, Okay, we'll move on to the next story then, if we may. And uh, the headline is Defibrillator rushed to cockpit as medical emergency forces WestJet flight back to Calgary. Uh, So this is headtopics.com is the website. A plane carrying, uh, sorry, a plane flying from Calgary to Atlanta Monday afternoon was forced to turn around due to a medical emergency involving the pilot. In an email statement, WestJet spokesperson Madison Kruger said EMS met the flight upon arrival and the pilot was removed from duty. Another pilot on board took control of the plane. All WestJet flights have two pilots to ensure that should any illness occur, In the flight deck, there is an additional pilot on board to ensure the continued safe operation of the aircraft and the safety of our guests and our crew, Kruger said. EMS said they responded to the airport uh, terminal around 1.25pm, but the paramedics had no patient contact and left the scene without request for EMS assistance. This advertisement has... uh, Okay. Uh... (laughs) Edmontonian John White was a passenger on the flight sitting four rows from the front of the plane. He first realised something was awry on the flight after noticing concern uh, among uh, flight attendants, one of whom brought a first aid kit and a defibrillator to the cockpit. They th- Then they made the call for if there was a doctor or nurse or EMT on the plane, and as luck would have it, one doctor came forward and two nurses, White said. Uh, he said a pilot on board in the passenger area uh, also made his way to the cockpit. White said the pilot was brought out of the cockpit and set down as medical volunteers treated him. The pilot appeared to collapse shortly afterwards. Uh, They were able to get him talking again after they got him on the floor, but they were working on him pretty feverishly, White said. WestJet declined to provide details on the illness or the current condition of the pilot, citing privacy concerns. The airline said 70 passengers were on board the flight, with some accommodated with travel Monday. The airline added additional Calgary to Atlanta and Atlanta to Calgary flights for Tuesday after the incident. A scramble and some lengthy queues ensued after the cancelled flight, White said. Uh, White praised the pilot and medical professionals on board for their handling of the incident and safe carriage of the flight back to Calgary. Quite uh, quite the story, actually, there. I mean, it's... um, it's uh, thank goodness there were a lots of um, you know medical professionals on board there. Also, the the access to another pilot who happened to be on board that I think is is quite a quite a useful thing. And uh, also, I mean, I know we've spoken. This is this is slightly off topic here, but uh, I mean, I remember having a conversation from a an article we read uh, ooh, probably quite a few months ago now, where we were talking about single pilot operations. Um, I mean, surely this is the prime example of why that must not happen. Yes, and I think there's obviously there's different kinds of types of flying as well, where uh, small operators uh, do have single pilot operations, um, but anything which is uh, of you know commercial jet type size or even large turboprop, 
um, it does need to have two pilots. Um, I think the um, the other key thing here is the defibrillator on board. Mm. Uh, from what I'm hearing, more and more airlines are having these as a standard fit uh, on, on board their aircraft now. And gosh, you know, here's a good example of you know of, of why you might need it. Definitely love it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, thank goodness. Well, I mean, hopefully the pilot is. Uh, very much on the mend um and uh yeah it sounds like he was certainly getting a1 treatment um in the in the uh in the uh cabin there so uh yeah yeah definitely um so moving on to the next story this is a good story because it involves wine oh and, hello uh, we, we like that <laughs> we lot. do um especially a nice it's... malbec hey Certainly, yes. Um, and it's on the drinksbusiness.com website, uh, come from the headsforpoints.com website and the Daily Mail. Uh, British Airways is looking for a master of wine to help transform its wine offering, which was previously described as rock bottom. Uh, until uh, 2010, uh, BA employed Jancis Robinson, amongst others, to choose the wines that would be available on board its flights. However, the carrier opted to appoint a single exclusive carrier for each of its three classes, the, uh, and Robinson subsequently resigned. Uh, in a 2019 article by the Financial Times, Jancis Robertson is quoted as saying, In 2009, uh, the then head of BA, Willie Walsh, decided to abandon the policy of choosing wines on the basis of what they tasted like, and instead to cut costs, appointed a single exclusive supplier for each of the three classes. In 2010, I resigned. BA's wine buying is currently in the hands of two young Frenchmen working for their parent company, IAG, who have no wine buying experience. Uh, the dire state of their budget can be judged from a recent discussion on flyer.flytalk.com. Uh, the, the, the Villa Maria Sauvignon Blanc then on offer in BA First Class was spotted in Morrison's at £5 a bottle and two for £9. Uh, even more recently, an Argentine Malbec uh, that retails for $10 was served in first class all submissions in a recent first class tender for wines over six euros a bottle from the cellar door were rejected and the budget for forwarding buying of claret used to be 25 euros uh, now the signs that uh, ba are ready to take its drinks offering seriously again after a report in the Daily Mail stated that the airline is looking to recruit a master of wine to overhaul its drinks selection. Uh, it must be said that the airline uh, itself said, as quoted in the Mail, they're looking for a passionate individual with a strong knowledge of all drinks categories, particularly wine, uh, which does not necessarily suggest that they are specifically looking to recruit uh, a master of wine. Um, and uh, there are currently... 418 master of wines based in 30 different countries isn't that extraordinary um but um of course sometimes just the inexpensive bottle of wine can be quite tasty can't it um and it de and depends what it tastes like at altitude not what it's like on the ground indeed, well, I, gotta, indeed. I gotta say there's a if there's a position open only one of us on this podcast uh is a master <laughs> of wine 
Uh, and uh, well, yeah, that'd be Nev, not me. Got nothing to do with me. I mean, although I must admit uh, that a uh, a master of wine is actually a surprisingly rare thing, um, because we actually have a master of wine who is in charge of all of our wine, obviously uh, for the company that I work for. And um, there are, I, I think it's something ridiculous. Like there's only like three or four here in the UK. It's uh, you know, it is a, a, a very, very seriously um, sort of like you know it's a very major job um it's uh and so you're not so you're not going to apply uh good lord no absolutely not no i'm 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 more worried that that our current master of wine might if the salary is good Because it's uh, yeah, I I think I think that the, what where I'm getting at with that is um, I think uh, it could well be not a very easy position to fill uh, if you saw what I mean. I mean because there'll be um, you know that 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 it, I, th- I think people underestimate what a what a what a skilled uh, profession that is if you see what I mean. And you're going to have to be offering these people big bucks uh, because most of the masters of wine are are currently working for you know pretty lucrative um, wine companies because. Uh, Frankly, that's how it works. That's what they do, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think BA are going to have to have their big checkbook out if they want, if they truly want to go down this route. I mean, I think it's a good idea because, I mean, think, uh, you know, a decent pairing uh, of a red or white wine with a meal uh, can make or break a meal. In, in in my experience, you know, I mean, you, if you, if you get that pairing wrong, then then you know, disappointment all round, really. So, I suppose yeah. it depends how much you have, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, there is that. Yes, absolutely, there is that. Uh, <laughs> certainly worth a worth a mention. You've got your um, you've got your filter on today. I think Nev, you've got a yes, you've got I your cloudy filter. Gone on with my camera. Uh, it's it's gone extremely weird. That the autofocus is just sort of yeah. not doing a very good job of it. So I'll, I'll have to have a fiddle. Yeah, with as I say, it's a bit like it's, he's got like an inst- he's got like the soft filter on, so that yes, yeah, so, or someone's rub- rubbed Vaseline on, on the lens. Possibly, who knows? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll, I'll try and fix that in a second. Excellent. Lovely. Okay. Well, uh, we're right. Uh, what, where are we so off to next? next story is Armando. Yeah. You get, okay. So you're going to have to pardon the, the festooned language in this. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. uh, I think they may have taken some, some uh, literary liberties in writing this. Oh. <laughs> but uh, this is from the New York Post.com in a technique seemingly reserved for automobiles. Nepal Airlines passengers were forced to push down on their airplane after a pop tire stranded it on the tarmac. A video of the airplane-esque scene uh, boasts more than 800,000 views on TikTok, which is exactly how we judge things now. Um, The surreal scenario occurred after a wheel allegedly burst on a Terra Air jet. Okay, allegedly, it either did or it didn't. Um, and, (laughs) And it wasn't a jet, it was a twin otter. Um, that had just landed at uh, Bajura Airport from Simcot in Humla, according to the Indian Express. As a result, the lightweight Twin Otter aircraft was left stranded in the middle of the runway, preventing other airplanes from departing. As that facility lacked the tools to move the airplane, passengers and security personnel had come together to resolve the situation. The resulting 20-minute footage shows the intrepid team pushing the green and white uh, aircraft they put jet here uh, down the runway like ants with cat with a caterpillar as bystanders cheered them on salvation finally came after another airplane arrived from nepal ganj carrying spare tires and engineers according to the indian express 
they outfitted the marooned aircraft with a new wheel and then flew both aircraft to Nepal Ganji. Uh, suffice it to say, social media was impressed by the impromptu tow team's resourcefulness. Hats off to all those pushing to move the airplanes, uh, wrote one fan under a Twitter repost of the clip. Um, Matt, did you get the pictures for this? Uh, no, is the short answer. Okay. Well, he, uh, <laughs> let me see event- what I can do. <laughs> no, no, it's essentially uh, there's some good pictures from the video that uh, show basically one person on every square inch of that aircraft pushing it off the runway. Wow. Um, I mean, that, that just seems like bonkers. I've got to be honest, yeah. that seems absolutely bonkers that that's something that would be... Oh, I see what you mean. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, I'm just going to pop the uh, just gonna pop the website up for a moment there because this, this has to be seen to be believed almost. This is just bizarre. Uh, <laughs> there you go. This is from the New York Post website directly. They're literally pushing... I mean, it's a, you know, it, at least it's not a jumbo, I suppose. There is that, but... <laughs> Correct. Despite them calling it a jet, it is uh, not a jumbo, no. a jumbo twin otter. There is no such thing. <laughs> no, indeed. Um, wow. But yeah, you know, good good for them. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of airplanes that, you know, you, you can put a little manual labor into it and push them by hand. <laughs> I hope somebody bought them a drink afterwards. I think they deserve it after all that. Goodness me. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I'm sure Terra Air probably uh, compensated with with a free ticket or something like I that. I should hope so. At least. <laughs> At least. You know, a lot of times this uh, this happens because of uh, uh, feet on the brakes. Right. If you try to, if you try to land a, an airplane with your feet on the brakes, it's going to pop the tire. So. Oh. Okay. I'm not saying that. I know that's what happened. But... No. You're not saying that you've ever done that, Armando? Is that <laughs> oh, I've... <laughs> I've bald spotted a couple tires in my in my life. <laughs> I mean, actually, you can do it in a one eighty two pretty pretty easy. <laughs> okay. hmm. Yes, bit like a, bet. a fifty pence piece by the time you finish. Oh, that. blimey, <laughs> <Yes>. cozy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, Dirk. Dirk has a great point. This oh. would have been a great caption. This. It would have been a great caption. This, isn't it? It may well be a great. It may well still say, be one. Like, it's never too late. <laughs> no, is it? It's never too late. <laughs> no, I don't think we did one this week. We should have. It was a bit of a fail. I think we could have done, couldn't we? Yes, exactly. Never yes. mind. Never mind. Um, so uh, yeah, I'll take um, <clears throat> the next story. Okay. Um, it's from freightwaves.com, and it says that uh, Air Canada rushes first freighter into service to supply flooded Vancouver. Uh, In a change of plans, Air Canada on Thursday operated the inaugural flight of its first dedicated freighter to Vancouver with a full load of supplies to help British Columbia cope with flooding and landslides that have disrupted freight, rail and truck transportation. Israel Aircraft Industries delivered the converted Boeing 767 cargo jet to uh, Air Canada's Toronto hub on Sunday. Uh, The aircraft was originally scheduled to fly its first mission to Frankfurt, but uh, Air Canada Cargo deployed the aircraft early to airlift goods to the Frankfurt area. Sorry, to the Vancouver area, I beg your pardon. Um, Air Canada said it plans to operate 12 trips between its Toronto and Vancouver cargo hubs with its all-new all-cargo aircraft. 
Uh, our teams have been working extremely hard over the last several days to get our freighter into service early to aid the transport of goods to Vancouver, said Jason Berry, who's the vice president of cargo in the announcement. In the initial aftermath of the flooding last month, Air Canada quickly increased cargo capacity by 646 tonnes into Vancouver from Toronto, Montreal and Calgary using cargo-only passenger jets and upsizing to larger aircraft on passenger service to, uh, services to accommodate more belly freight. Uh, freight uh, railroads in Canada are now operating limited service to the port of Vancouver. Uh, Air Canada Cargo will eventually have eight 767-300s in its fleet. Uh, the carrier decided to establish a freighter until late last year after successfully pivoting to cargo-only passenger flights during the pandemic and recognising how much uh, e-commerce is boosting air cargo growth. Since March 2020, Air Canada has operated more than 13,000 all-cargo flights globally using its wide-body passenger aircraft, as well as uh, certain temporarily modified Boeing 777 and Airbus A330 aircraft, which have additional available cargo space due to the removal of seats from the passenger cabin. Uh, the Boeing 767-300 extended range uh, freighters will allow Air Canada Cargo to offer five different main deck configurations, increasing the overall cargo capacity of each aircraft to nearly 64 tonnes or 15,000 cubic feet. Three quarters of the capacity is on the main deck where passengers used to sit. <clears throat> the freighters will provide consistent capacity to shippers, reducing the chance of shipments being squeezed out by baggage and being held for the next flight. They will also increase Air Canada's capability to transport goods such as automotive and aerospace parts, oil and gas equipment, pharmaceuticals, perishables, as well as e-commerce goods. Well, that's good here, isn't it? Mm. There's some flexibility going on in the world of uh, the freight operations. And, of course, so many of the regular passenger carriers uh, had to revert to, to cargo operations because they had no passengers uh, in the height of the pandemic. And I think they're still doing a lot of that now where they can't fill uh, the aircraft with fair-paying passengers. I think I can see yeah. them keeping this for, like, you know, even sort of if we ever are in a position with, like, you know, post-COVID, if, if that can ever be a thing now. Uh, you know, I, I think I think a lot of lessons, uh, you know, I mean, uh, they've always been carrying cargo, I suppose, haven't they? I mean, very few airliners that, you know, carrying passengers have not had some kind of mail or parcels in, in their hull. Um, but I, I, yeah, I can I see think, more of uh, I think based on, on the past couple of years, uh, Air Canada was, like like the article said, they were planning on making eight of their aircraft freighters. Um, but for from everything that I've seen now to all of our Canadian listeners, you know, our thoughts are with you because uh, Vancouver has been experiencing some terrible floods mm. um, since just before Thanksgiving here in the U S and uh, from what, what I was reading actually this weekend, they're supposed to get another uh, couple hundred millimeters of rain. Um, so they're, they're getting some terrible, terrible floods up there. And um, from, from what I saw that air Canada uh, forewent the paint job on this aircraft and just put it right into service um, carrying uh, uh, relief supplies out to Vancouver. Additionally, the here in the U.S., we have Operation Airdrop, which is a conglomeration of uh, general aviation pilots that gets together and uh, conducts relief flights with their own personal aircraft. That actually happened up in Vancouver over the last couple of weeks also, where 
um, especially up there in, in that part of Canada. There's a lot of remote airstrips, um, remote towns where the only way in and out or the best way in and out is aircraft, um, especially when uh, roads get washed out, bridges get washed out and, and people are do donating their own time and aircraft and fuel to get uh, much needed supplies out to those uh, locations. So. Wow. Mm. Yes. Good stuff. Very good stuff. Uh, well, I think that's where we come to the end of the commercial aircraft segment. So uh, up next, it'll be the military. And we normally have a, a short break in between those, don't we, Matt? We do indeed. We'll be back after this very brief message. Well, uh, welcome to our London studios. Uh, welcome to the A320 Lounge uh, webinar uh, tech presentation, um, obviously for the 320 series. Welcome to the A320 and 737 Lounge, bringing technical refresher courses directly to you. Using our cutting-edge broadcasting facilities, enjoy a fully interactive technical refresher course from the comfort of your own home. All of our webinars are live and you can ask your instructor a question at any point during the day. All of our instructors are highly experienced and can help you. No more expensive nights away from home, no new software required, just an internet connection. Courses are run at regular intervals, so check out A320Lounge and 737lounge.com for more details. Okay, guys, so this uh, military story is a little bit, or I guess our military segment's a little bit different this week. Um, our listener, Sturman, uh, sent in a couple questions this week. Uh, one of them was he had seen an uptick in CH-47 and V-22 flights in Europe, and he was wondering if that was in response to the Ukraine uh, situation. And additionally, a follow-up question was, does the U.S. Air Force or the U.S. military um, plan for these kinds of things, or do they, or do they uh, change their training uh, based on current events? So, if you guys will bear with me for a little bit here, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'll talk a little bit about it. So, the the first thing um, that goes into this, there's a lot of planning. There's a lot of concepts of operations that have already been developed by the U.S. military um, and its partner uh, combatant commands. In this case. Um, U.S. forces in, in Europe, right? So this is uh, the U.S. Air Forces in Europe and European Command. There, it's a joint organization that's responsible for both uh, the security situation, humanitarian, and, and partner nation capabilities over in Europe. Um, this is not anything new. So the plans are always on the shelf for uh, what to do should there be an incursion from Russia or any other actor. And um, they're essentially kind of this, this playbook. Now, inside of that playbook, there may be some, some uh, parts that you take out, parts that you put in, uh, depending on the actual current events, current situation. Um, but, but at the end of the day, there are just these overarching concepts of operation or what we call con-ops for, for each theater. That's all over the world, including the U.S. itself, right? So um, now 
because because this is an aviation podcast we'll kind of stick with with um the air air part of this the air portion the the russians have in their southern military district um, they call it their fourth air force command their the headquarters is in rostov which is down in that uh, ukraine region um, they've got almost a dozen air bases with uh, su-24s su-25s 26s mig-29s mig-35s and then some forward bases with some attack helicopters their their large fleet of tu-22s now those aircraft can obviously fly halfway around the world so they can kind of stay at their home bases um, but they've also got tu-160s tu-195s um, based in some other areas uh, in eastern russia that they can move um, to the region should they need to now partner nations that's that's called an order of battle basically if you think back to the to the world war ii days where there's a a command room you know if you go to the churchill war rooms um down there in uh in london you know they still had the maps they still had the tables from when there was a an, a technician that would take this little slider and, and move a uh, uh, basically a chess piece across a map on the table where everybody could look down. We still have those. Obviously, it's all digital now. But for every uh, Russian asset that's out there, partner nations have something to uh, to counter that. So Germany, you know, as you know, has uh, tornadoes. They have typhoons. The Ukrainian Air Force itself has a whole fleet of MiG-29s, SU-24s, 25s, 27s. Italy has uh, typhoons, F-35s, and tornadoes. And the Polish Air Force has um, MiG-29s, uh, SU-22s, and F-16s. So all of these, um, especially the U.S.-based, sorry, the U.S.-made aircraft, have been provided to these partner nations. And that was just a few of them. There's, there's plenty more um, in order to counter the threats that the Russians pose, right? Now, the U.S. and the way the, the U.S. is set up out there, you get the, the U.S. Air Forces in Europe. Um, and then underneath that, there is uh, uh, Special Operations Command Europe. So the biggest air bases over there are Aviano, Incirlik. Um, I can never pronounce it. We just call it MK. It's in Constanza, Romania, um, uh, Rota. And then, of course, all the bases in the UK, uh, Fairford, Lake and Heath, Mildenhall. And the big ones in, in Germany are Ramstein and Spengdalen. Between all of those bases, you have F-15s, F-16s, KC-135s. Um, C-130s, all of these have been photographed by Jonathan Horner. And uh, in addition to that, you have a forward deployed U-2 base in Akrotiri in Cyprus. Um, as far as rotary wing goes, the U.S. Army has rotary wing assets all over Germany and Italy and including the, uh, the Air Force Special Operations Command there in Mildenhall in the east of the U.K. So the question was the uptick in activity. <laughs> It's always a chess game. So with the increased activity on the Russian side of the border, um, the U.S. Army this week had an exercise that they called combined resolve. Um, and this always happened. It happens with exercise uh, Zapad. It happens with exercise Flintlock, where one side doesn't exercise, the other, size, the other side doesn't exercise two months later. And inevitably, it's the biggest exercise they've ever done in the region. So um, just recently, the, the last couple weeks um based in the hohenfels training area there in uh, bavaria it's a it's a little area between nuremberg and regensburg so the army's been flying all kinds of stuff the u.s uh, special operations have been going out there it's basically a show of force um 
each force does this every couple months just to remind the other ones, hey, this is what we do and we're here and don't you forget it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So combined resolve this year included 4,600 soldiers from uh, Bulgaria, Georgia, Greece, Italy, Lithuania, Poland, Serbia, Slovenia, Ukraine, United Kingdom, and the United States. So it's a pretty big exercise. You can rest assured that the Russians were watching it, but but the allied forces knew that the Russians were watching it. So it's kind of this tit for tat type thing. Um, obviously there is an increased threat right now of Russia amassing its forces um, on the border. And, and there is, a, I guess we'll just call it increased likelihood for an incursion across the border. Um, yeah, and then, and then the other question that Sturman had was um, the, the training part of it. So we train to those concepts of operations that, we, that I was talking about earlier. Those concepts of operations produce what's called mission, mission essential tasks lists. Um, those medals, mission essential tasks, is essentially what each um, wing, at least in the Air Force, is manned to. So let's say uh, Lake and Heath. The Lake and Heath's medals is to deter Russian aggression with uh, fighter air superiority, right? It's, it's not thousands of them. It'll just be a couple medals. All right, and then, then the Congress and the US Department of Defense says, well, in order to do that, we're gonna place F-15s, a couple rescue squadrons at REF Lake and Heath. And then um, however many airplanes go over there determines however, how many pilots are gonna go over there. How many airplanes and pilots determines how many maintainers and then how many support personnel, right? So it's for every airplane, you probably have 30 to 40 people on down the line that supports this whole operation. And that's how the US uh, essentially does its, its manning um, for, for these uh, contingency, contingency operations. We train to it, we train to what's, what's unknown, but then we also train to the unknown, which is, um, that's great that we practice, 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 but how would they do it? If they were to cross the border, how would they do it differently this time, right? So um, one of the biggest changes that I've seen over the, the last 10 years is not just like a, uh, you know, tanks rolling across hills type thing. It's not fighter jets shooting at each other in the sky. It, it includes a, uh, a cyber portion to that. It includes an information operations portion to to combat. So how do you practice those things? Those are the little, the little con ops, um, the little pages that you put into the playbook that say, Hey, we've never done this before. We're going to practice basically a, a, a cyber defensive, um, posture or something to that effect. Um, so, so the question is yes to start, or the answer is yes. We train to the knowns, but we also adapt and are flexible to train to the unknowns. Um, so sermon hopefully that uh, answers your question thanks for all the love in the chat room that's that's the most i'll speak today <laughs> wow um well as always fantastic yeah. inside info from armando under very trying oh, quite with your voice. absolutely well done um a very yeah a very concise answer there uh, hopefully that answers your questions Sturman. i'm sure it does but, yeah, we're not uh, going to ask you no, any follow-up no, questions. No follow-up questions. I think, he, I, I think he soldiered on enough. <laughs> Bless him. Yeah. 
while, while he goes and has a sip of his lemon tea uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and or something stronger uh, Jonathan, perhaps... uh, Warner in the chat room says my throat hurts for Armando <laughs> yeah, absolutely right well done, well done mate yeah absolutely thank you and a brilliant a brilliant explanation as always even with a poorly voice he can still make he can still make military sound interesting I mean who'd have thought that was possible Nev there you are I know <laughs> I I yeah. doff my cap. Absolutely, indeed. Yeah. Oh, indeed. I, I do have to caveat. All of that is from publicly available sources. Of course, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I expect nothing less. Okay. Yeah, well, globalsecurity.org has the order of battle. <laughs> Air Force Doctrine is uh, publicly available. Excellent. So I'm in trouble with anyway. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yes, of course. Uh, so the next story is on the aviationist.com. And it says the UAE signs historic deal with France for 80 Rafale uh, fighter jets. Uh, the deal, which also includes Rafale's weapons and 12 Caracal, was that Caracal uh, helicopters, is considered the largest contract ever signed for the export of French weapons. France and the UAE signed a historic deal what has already been defined as the largest ever contract for the export products of the French combat aviation industry. Uh, the deal was inked at the Dubai Expo 2020 on December the 3rd, 2021, obviously, uh, at the presence of the French President Emmanuel Macron and Sheikh Mohammed ben Zayed Al Nain, uh, Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi and Vice Commander of the UAE Armed Forces and includes three contracts valued at 17 billion euro for a total of 92 aircraft and related weapons. The sale is divided as follows. A first contract worth 14 billion euro covers the acquisition of 80 Dassault Rafale fighter jets uh, with a second 28 billion euro contract for its weapons. Uh, the third worth another billion is related to the acquisition of 12 Airbus uh, H225M helicopters to be used for combat search and rescue and anti-ship missions. Uh, with these contracts, the UAE will become the largest exporter operator of the Rafale and the only operator outside of France to receive the F4 variant. Uh, this deal has been in the works for more than a decade as the UAE were the, f were the candidate to become the first export buyer of the Rafale in 2009 when the two governments were in talks for the sale of 60 fighter jets. Uh, the UAE are now the sixth export customer of the aircraft joining uh, Egypt, Qatar, India, Greece and Croatia bringing the total export orders for the aircraft to 236 which includes both new and second-hand aircraft. Uh, first deliveries of the F-4 to the UAE are planned for 2027. Uh, also on the .com, uh it says that uh, Croatia buys second-hand Rafales from France to replace uh, MiG-21s, and the signing of the contract followed the selection of the aircraft earlier this year after a first acquisition of second-hand F-16s failed in 2019. Uh, Croatia signed a government-to-government -government deal with France worth 999 million euros for the acquisition of 12 second-hand Dassault Rafale during a ceremony in Zagreb 
on November the 25th this year. The ceremony was attended by the French President Emmanuel Macron and the Croatian Prime Minister, uh, the French Minister of the Armed Forces and the Croatian Minister uh, who uh, the of the uh, Defence uh, and the CEO of Dassault Aviation, Eric Trappier. Uh, the contract reportedly involved 10 single-seater and two twin-seater aircraft in the F3R standard, with the first aircraft scheduled to be delivered in 2024 and the remaining ones due the following year. The French jets will allow Croatia to replace, replace its obsolete MiG-21s, of which only a few are still operational out of the 12 total aircraft in service. Uh, the Rafale was selected on May the 28th this year following an international competition which saw the French aircraft facing the Saab Gripen, the F-16V Block 70-72, second-hand F-16s from Israel and, according to some sources, even second-hand Eurofighters uh, typhoons from Italy. Uh, the deal is considered the largest acquisition programme since Croatia's independence from the former Yugoslavia. So that is a big deal nonetheless and it sounds though it's taken a long while to, to get it there but that's a that's a big lot of aircraft that's being purchased, yeah absolutely it? and uh what hot off the presses here uh, as you can always imagine jonathan warner uh, a nice fresh shiny picture of said variant uh right uh, right there there we go so not a well not uh, as well known uh of uh, not well known as only the french used this particular version he was uh, he 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 added to that um, and it's he, the he caracol. is the car- caracol. There we go. Right, very good. That's uh, sorry because he did write that there, but uh, I, 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 <laughs> I wasn't as brave as Nev to have a yeah. go at it. <laughs> well, I just wanted to make sure that we're not saying that that's a Rafale fighter. Oh, I see. Right, it gonna... makes a great target for a Rafale fighter. <laughs> right, I see. <laughs> right, okay, fair enough. Yeah, okay, I see what you did there. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, all right. We'll move on to the next story then. And uh... Uh, feel free to abridge this one if you want, Matt. I'll, I'll give it a go. It's fine. We'll, we'll soldier on. Uh, thedrive.com is the website that this has come from. And the headline is, The wreck of a crashed British F-35 has been pulled out of the Mediterranean. The UK Ministry of Defence says that the wreckage of a Royal Air Force F-35B joint strike fighter that crashed into the Mediterranean Sea shortly after taking off from the Royal Navy aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth last month has been recovered. Successfully locating the remains of the aircraft and and retrieving them had been top priority given the operational security risks that would have been posed if any part of the plane had fallen into the hands of a less than friendly country, says such as Russia. The uh, operations to recover the, uh, the UK F-35 in the Mediterranean Sea have successfully concluded and there is no danger or compromise to sensitive equipment on the aircraft, a statement from the Ministry of Defence said, which was posted by the Sun newspaper in the United Kingdom. Oh, well, there we are then. It's fine. Uh, that outlet uh, said that it had taken two weeks to locate the wreck on the sea floor and then another week to successfully bring it up to the surface. The US and Italian navies had also been involved in the search and recovery effort, which was hampered by rough seas, the Sun reports, adding that the wreckage was recovered to a chartered salvaged ship. The uh, Royal Air Force, the RAF, the F-35B from number 617 Squadron, the Dambusters, had plunged into the Mediterranean 
Mediterranean on November the 17th this year. For still unknown reasons, the pilot ejected and was recovered safely. Early, an earlier report suggested the aircraft had ingested an air intake blocker that had... Uh, that and that the pilot hadn't successfully attempted to abort the takeoff after it became clear that the aircraft would not reach sufficient speed to get airborne. But this remains unconfirmed. A video seen in the tweet below the the, the a video seen on a tweet had emerged on social media last week uh, that appeared to show the crash as recorded by a video camera system on HMS Queen Elizabeth and was in line with that report. The UK Defence Journal published a story earlier today citing anonymous sources saying that the individual who had leaked that video after recording it on their cell phone has now been arrested. <laughs> the lack of any grounding order following the incident uh, does strongly indicate the British officials already believe that some kind of human error rather than a technical issue with the aircraft was the cause of the mishap. R regardless of the cause of the accident, the aircraft, or at least the bulk of what is left of it, are now safely back in the hands of the UK government. As the war zone previously reported, the remains of an F-35 of any type could have been an intelligence windfall for a potential adversary, uh, especially if the aircraft could be recovered largely intact. Similar concerns have been raised after a Japanese F-35A crashed in the Pacific Ocean in 2019. At least some of the wreckage of that jet was left at the bottom of the sea. Russia, with its fleet of deep-diving special mission submarines, as well as the deep-sea salvage uh, ship, is... Uh, is... Um, there we go. Sorry, uh... <laughs> Sorry, I just realized I've done all that with the wrong yeah. camera up, haven't I? Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it was switching on you. Oh, was it? Um, okay. I'll, I'll basically save you from the rest of the, okay. the story here. The, Russia does have some uh, deep diving capabilities, deep recovery uh, capabilities, and um, it was a pretty fast and furious operation to recover this aircraft, as as you guys can imagine. Mm. Um, this would have would have been... Uh, and so there's different variants of these aircraft and uh, different capabilities with uh, electronic warfare. Mm. And the UK basically gets the same version as the US. Right. So it would have it would have been uh, bad news had the had the Russians gotten a hand on this. I see so, that makes more sense now because I, I was sort of thinking I was wasn't quite sure what why the the relevance of. Um... You know, certain adversaries, shall we say, um, sort of getting their hands on it was such a concern. But I mean, presumably, with, with an incident like this, there there must have been some. You know, if they were fairly sure they knew where it had ended up, if you like, there must have been security in the area. Presumably. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. That well, that ship probably stopped right there. But then, it, yeah. then the question was, how do how do they get it? Um, yeah, I thought I thought it was really interesting in this in that article that they arrested the person who leaked, leaked the video. Mm. that is a that's a that's a big operational security concern yeah absolutely um, and it was probably a member of of the the royal navy yeah absolutely with, you know videotaping the security camera on the airplane um i'm sure the uh the royal navy didn't want that to get out no absolutely not well and of course at this stage um you know whilst the official findings uh haven't been publicly released if you see what i mean and i'm sure there will be an element of public release at some point where they may in fact op you know offer that video as 
you know the reason behind it etc etc i mean it's uh you know technically that that video is evidence in an incident isn't it so it, you know therefore oh, yeah. not in the public record at this stage well the idea that that a sailor um recorded that off of the security camera and then posted it to social media mm. that's a that's a, a no-go in career limiting term. i would say career limiting is, is the word we're looking for yep. yeah absolutely yep. also uh, you know a, a moment of frankly stupidity on that person's part i mean presumably they must have had some kind of <laughs> you know can't cure stupid <laughs> yeah fair point yes absolutely uh that is true but uh yeah it's uh yeah it's uh good good news that it's been recovered and uh, as i say perhaps uh uh, more information will be available on that. Although I think it, I think uh, reading between the lines, it seems quite well. Perhaps not quite clear, but I think most people are under the impression yeah. they know what happened. You know, as yeah, you, and it, as it said in the article, the fact that the aircraft was then wasn't immediately grounded, like all of them, uh, rather rather in you know suggests that as as it said in the article, human error rather than mechanical. Yeah. Well, you can do an accountability and count how many engine intake covers you have left on the deck <laughs> you should only be well you shouldn't be missing any and if you're no. missing one yeah and then yeah. a plane fell in the sea that's probably your answer isn't yeah. it <laughs> so, absolutely pretty pretty short investigation yes indeed absolutely well yeah I, but I, I dare say there'll be some other box box ticking that has to take place i guess with 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 this yeah yeah okay all right are you so up for one, the last one then amando are you all right uh, we can we can all tackle it together but, okay um, all right this one is just for jonathan warner is it oh dear um, and and all of our <laughs> I'm terrified friends already. of the show no this is uh, actually for nick for all of our friends of the show that are photogs and love to take pictures of airplanes uh, on the 7th and 8th of december this story is actually from the ref uh, members of the RAF's uh, photographic profession welcome photographers and media officers from the Irish Air Corps Defense Press and the United States Air Force Combat Camera Team from Lake and Heath to Bryce Norton for exercise allied lens. Uh, I would venture to say that the Russians were not tracking this exercise. <laughs> um, what is a first for the RAF and the photographic trade? The exercise started with photographers working on Chinook helicopters from 27 Squadron based at RAF Odium, um, who were at Bryce Norton working with the RAF's medical emergency response team. Um, they were moving uh, exercise casual, uh, casualties to the hospital. Uh, working with this aircraft, um, really any helicopter, provided a unique challenge to the photographers due to extreme downwash created by the rotors, um, coupled with the cold weather. Hey, it's England in November, December. Um, <laughs> and the activity that the uh, photographers had never captured before this resulted in all of them being in an unfamiliar situation. Working alongside an aircraft they had little knowledge of in a location they didn't know, truly pushing them outside of their comfort zones. So from there, they went on to RAF uh, Bryce Norton's Runway 25, where despite the weather, they had a chance to witness that massive C-17 Globemaster flown by 99 Squadron arriving from RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus. Now, being this close to a live runway gave the visiting photographers an appreciation of the size of the aircraft, but also um, the need to be fully aware of their surroundings. This uh, gave all the, photogra the photographers a chance to share their knowledge, hints, tips, best practices, and of course, working with uh, different units promotes um, best practice, both in terms of aerial tasking and day-to-day -day operations while strengthening their relationships with the uh, allied forces. 
Um, so there you go. The, the the reason we put that in there, other than this is like Jonathan's dream job, is to be... Uh, <laughs> He'll be annoyed he wasn't able. there. Absolutely. Mm. <laughs> right. I mean, all these uh, military photographers should take a lesson from him, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they, did, they did get some, what he would say, adequate pictures. They were okay. <laughs> um, no, they, uh, this is a unique thing. This is a, you know, you, you might... You might think, why do we have photographers? It's important to document history. It's important to document um, these contingency operations for the history books, especially nowadays um, in the digital age. But if you look back, you know, some of these documentaries going back to World War II, how important it was it to mm. to capture those images, you know, and now they're all being remastered and and it's really important as that generation um, dies off to, to memorialize their accomplishments and everything that they did. Um, so these combat photographers are important, you know, just most recently in the Afghanistan situation, right? You, de you deploy a combat camera team to document the situation um, that may turn into just for historical purposes, for training purposes, um, for legal purposes even but it's uh it's really important to capture history in the in the military and in our overseas and contingency operations because um, otherwise the the story would never get out you know and at the end of the day it's your taxpayer money right it's your taxes that are paying for this uh, military operations it's my taxes and and it's good to have the military publish um in picture format if nothing else um, what so, it is that they're doing with their with your money so as you might imagine uh, mr warner has been in touch and he says uh, i have been to oldham uh, photographing the chinooks and uh, as if by magic there we go <laughs> look so he he he's been I, I believe what he's trying to say there very politely essentially is yawn been there done that I think he's, right. <laughs> he's what he's I mean, look at that to... picture. I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? Oh, he's such a talented individual. I hate him. Uh... <laughs> I can't. I can't, uh, I can't tell the difference between the professional photographers and. Well, no, and he Jonathan is a Warner. professional photographer. Quite often, when I'm driving yeah. uh, down the A34, yeah. um, uh, and there's some exercises going on towards Odium uh, mm. around that area, at least um, the whole. Even though there's no traffic jam particularly, uh, all the cars slow Everything down. Everything slows down, absolutely. Look at these low-level yeah, uh, chilliks going over. And yeah. uh, boy, do they make a racket. Indeed. Sure. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Well, I think a little polite ripple and a round of applause, I think, needs yes. to go for our Monto there. Thank you so much <laughs> for soldiering on there. Thank you very much for your first uh, answering uh, Sturman's questions there. That was genuinely very fascinating. Thank you for for being here yeah. and doing that. I'm sure that was uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, if you have any questions for Armando, uh, perhaps for another military segment, why not send it in? Uh, uh, Park, I nearly... I <laughs> nearly gave out the wrong email. I mean, you can send it to studio at parkradio.co.uk if you like. Uh, may confuse some of the other mm. on-air team. Uh, but why not use podcast at plaintalkinguk.com? That'll be far better. Uh, I think you have access to that now as well, don't you, Armando? So you should be I able do. to see. And, yeah, I, and I much prefer to, to answer questions and just kind of yeah, absolutely for military stories. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, So uh, it, we are an interactive show here. So get your comments in or questions in for Armando.
Armando and he will do his level best to answer it. Uh, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Well, Excellent there stuff. we go. Um, well, that, um, we've not got much else to talk about I think, except uh, yeah. possibly um, just a quick reminder of the 400th show. Yes. Um, which is feels as though it's ages away, but of course it's not. No, it? I don't think it is. It's not it's, far away at all, is it? Not at all, so it's <laughs> Saturday the 26th mm. of February 2022 at the Brooklands Museum, mm. Weybridge in Surrey. That's just to the southwest of Heathrow. Mm. Um, and uh, if you would like to attend, you need to send us an email to... Yeah podcast at plaintalkinguk.com to register your interest we have got limited numbers um, but we'll certainly see if we can accommodate you if you would like to come um, also we're going to be having a day full of uh, surprises and maybe the odd special guest here and there but we'd also like to hear from you yeah. about what you would like to see there as well mm. as all very well us churning stuff out but um, it would be quite interesting for us to hear from you, dear listeners and viewers, mm. about the sort of things that you'd like to see at that event. Absolutely. And, uh, let's see if we can make some of those things happen. Let, let, let's not forget here, the whole reason that we've got to 400 episodes is literally because of you guys downloading and watching the show every single week. So uh, we would love to make sure uh, that we're ticking all the boxes when it comes to the 400th, which we're very, very excited to bring you. And if you've got any ideas about what you would like us to do at that event, as Nev says, make sure you get in touch. It's podcast at play talkinguk.com excellent stuff so uh, yes we'll be planning for that um, mm. well we're planning for that all the time yes but, you know, absolutely it's, yeah it's an endless task but, yes uh, armando's even bought his plane tickets already yes. <laughs> yeah don't, don't go do anything crazy like locking down your country oh don't go oh don't don't open that can of worms <laughs> absolutely yeah. bring the whole family over because yeah. really who doesn't want to go to england in february well quite <laughs> Yeah, gonna, that's the thing, isn't it? There's, there's going to be these various airlines who are thinking, why are so many people booking flights to London? Like, <laughs> what's wrong with them? But yeah. uh, yes, you see the importance of the PTUK 400th. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, as things stand at the moment here in the UK, uh, there is no reason why it can't go ahead. Obviously, uh, the only uh, major requirement at the moment, of course, is the the having a mask. Um, but uh, yeah, obviously, we'll keep you up to date as we get a bit nearer to February because everything could change between now and then we might even um you know things might even be an awful lot better by the time we get there so uh, that's one of the reasons why we're, we're we're not sort of like firming up our final details if you like until we get a little bit nearer but please do register your interest a podcast at plaintalkinguk.com to get yourself on the guest list because uh, we are, we do have limited spaces and once it's full it's full so yeah if you haven't registered your interest already and would like to attend us in february do it now Absolutely. So don't forget, if you want to uh, search for us on social media, uh, search for Plain Talking UK on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Our WhatsApp number is plus 44 757 2249166. That's plus 44 uh, Email is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com and the website is www.plaintalkinguk.com. Uh, you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll get notifications for when we go live. And of course, you can help shape the conversation of the show by joining us in the chat room, as so many have done tonight. And if you want to go to YouTube uh, for that, go to youtube.com forward slash plain talking uk 
Uh, also on our website, there is an Amazon link. If you would like to do your Amazon shopping on there, uh, we get a small referral fee for you doing that. And also, don't forget, why not become a Patreon? And details of how you can do that are also on our website as well. And of course, we very much value all of your efforts in supporting uh, the show. So thank you very much to everybody who does that. Indeed, I think that's where we need to uh, wrap the show up, if only for Armando's sake, let's be honest. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much to everyone who has joined us today. And uh, do we dare um, Do we dare well, allow do- Armando Dr. to do this? <laughs> well, Dr. Steph just oh. joined the chat room. Oh, is she? Yeah, just and, in time uh, to finish. <laughs> well, no, it's funny because I was supposed to go help uh, Dr. Steph with uh, some household duties right. down on, on her end of the lake. And uh, I bailed on her because I wasn't feeling so well. So there you go. Okay. There's, there's proof. There's proof. Visual that, proof. That, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that she's not. That he's he's not. And we can confirm he's a bit poorly, blessed, which is Let's... why we're wrapping up half an hour earlier than we than we often do. Just literally. The poor guy needs a rest. Thank you. But seriously, Let's I'm under. Let's just say that I have the uh, improve my appearance filter all the oh, way. Oh, good. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's all about the lighting, the red face on this occasion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. We're going to wrap things up then uh armando if you can manage it then please do say goodbye to our wonderful people yeah thanks for hanging in there with us uh we'll get back to some regular length shows at some point but everybody (laughs) take care of yourselves stay safe stay healthy cheers guys bye-bye